Well, you can be seated. We'll dismiss our kids to children's ministry. And if you uh, have your Bible, and we'll open up to the book of Proverbs, chapter 28. Today we're in Proverbs 28, looking at verse 1. Proverbs 28, verse 1 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Well, let's start. Let's just dig in. A couple of qualifiers from the beginning. The first thing to note is that the fleeing that is being condemned in this passage is a sinful fleeing, uh, and the boldness that's being commended in this passage is a boldness flowing from true righteousness and not merely self-righteousness. And I'll make that distinction a little further on. The kind of qualifier I want to start with is simply this idea. There is a sinful fleeing. We see it as a manifestation of sinfulness, and we see it first in Adam and Eve, who fled the presence of God. And we see this same sinful fleeing, and we'll discuss this again in a moment, the disciples at the cross. But there is also a righteous fleeing. We're told in scriptures to flee sexual immorality, and we're told in scriptures to have in the scriptures to have nothing to do with certain people or so on and so forth. So there's a sinful fleeing and there's a righteous fleeing. And there is a sinful boldness, which is boasting and arrogance and pride. And then there is, of course, a righteous boldness. And that is the main subject of the message today. In many respects, this message is just a continuation of the message last week, which is essentially asking, what is our proper posture toward the future? The future being kind of a stand-in, a representation of uncertainty itself. How should we interact with uncertainty? And last week, we talked about three potential positions. And the first two are sort of uh, something that we would sort of almost go through a spiritual ping-pong with. We'd, we'd be jumping sides, and the first two would be, you can be arrogant and boastful about tomorrow. And the scriptures warn against this very thing, where you essentially tell tomorrow that you're in charge, which, of course, is a lie. Uh, and then the, uh, the other option is anxiousness toward tomorrow, and that's sort of the future telling you um, that it's in charge, and that would also be a lie. And we said that there's a third option the scriptures present and command us to, and that is instead of adventure or instead of uh, arrogance and anxiety, we should have a posture toward uncertainty that looks something like adventure. Adventure being, I'm not in charge, but my God is the Ancient of Days, and he is already in the future. He is already in whatever uncertainty that I see. It is absolutely certain to him. And so really what we're talking about today is another way of discussing this sense of adventure because that's what boldness is. Boldness is simply an attitude toward risk. Uh, if you don't have risk, you, boldness can't emerge. If you don't have uncertainty, uh, boldness can't emerge. Boldness is simply another way of talking about what we talked about last week, which is this adventurous spirit toward uncertainty that is rooted in reliance on who God is. Now, Let's, I want to, it's very important to me today, I have, a, I have a, a very specific goal today, and I'll reveal that in a moment, but it's very important that we understand how full-orbed 
boldness is. So I want to go through some examples of biblical boldness. Most often, I think, when we think about boldness, we tend to think about people speaking up. Fair? Most of the time when we think about boldness, we think of people speaking up. And certainly the Bible has plenty of instances where that is included in the category. John the Baptist confronting Herod. That was a very bold move. Jesus himself, boldness all over the place. Paul opposing Peter to his face. Boldness. So this idea of speaking up is included in the idea of boldness. In, in, in the book of Ephesians, for instance, Paul actually asked the Ephesians to pray for him that words may be given to him in opening his mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. So I think that is the default category when I say we're going to talk about boldness, we would most likely think, well, then that means we're going to talk about boldness in speaking up. But the truth is, is that boldness is really the manifestation of all virtues. I'll get to that more in a moment. And that boldness is sort of just the expression of all sorts of virtues in the face of uncertainty, in the face of risk. So, for instance, one of the boldest characters in the New Testament is a man named Barnabas. And, and, and that might come off as like, well, gosh, I never really thought about the fact that Barnabas was a bold man. But the truth is, is there was a moment when Saul, who we know as the Apostle Paul, had been converted, converted from a state in which he was a real and present physical threat to believers. He was actively breathing out murderous threats against believers. He was persecuting believers, and he was reported to have been converted. But the text in the book of Acts says that no one would meet with him because they thought maybe he was playing possum, you know. Uh, and so we find one man willing to meet with him, and that is Barnabas. That move tells us that there is something, there's a, a bold way to love. There's a bold way of embracing people that comes at a risk to ourselves. And well before that, we saw Barnabas selling his property and giving it to the church. And so that means that boldness can manifest not just in speaking up and not just in loving people and welcoming people. Boldness can, can manifest in giving. And then when the Antioch church is sort of a question mark of like, what's going on there anyway? One person steps up to face all of that uncertainty and it's Barnabas. And so you can see there again that Barnabas' posture toward the unknown, particularly the unknown in others, is a posture of boldness. Um, when he left with Paul to do missions work, left the church that he had helped establish that was really kind of the happening place in the New Testament church, when he left that for the great unknown, that was boldness. And so it's important that we understand boldness not simply to be the inserting of oneself into a hard conversation. It can be that, but it can be many other things as well. Bolder, boldness is really the application of any Christian virtue in a moment that feels or seems risky. That's a good way to think about it. It is adventurism personified with this word boldness. Now, I'm not going to take a lot of time to explain the value of boldness, Oftentimes, I feel like when the scripture commands something, then we should just be like, okay, let's try to figure it out then. If, if God's telling us to do it, let's figure out how to do it. Let's not, let's spare, spare one another the patronizing sales pitch where I try to convince you that you should do what God wants you to do. Just hopefully you want to do what God wants you to do. But I will tell you that one of the things that you wouldn't want to sleep on related to boldness 
is the incredible benefits it brings to other people. I think that often our resistance toward boldness, godly boldness, has a a, a bit of resistance, uh, masked perhaps, though we would articulate it this this way, that we, we are concerned about hurting others and so forth. I think that can I think that can be bought too quickly when in reality we're, we're afraid of hurting ourselves. But I want to make sure we understand that boldness is of great benefit to other people. Last week I, I mentioned a quote from Edwin Friedman in his book Failure of Nerve, and I just want to revisit that quote one more time. He says, we are on our way to becoming a nation of skimmers, living off the risks of previous generations and constantly taking from the top without adding significantly to its essence. This is sort of like a civilizational employee who earns a salary but doesn't earn any money for the company. And Friedman's concerned that that, that our culture is becoming that, a culture of people who are taking from the till but not adding anything to the reserves. And he says that everything we enjoy as part of our advanced civilization, including the discovery, exploration, and development of our country came about because previous generations made adventure more important than safety. So what I'm saying is is that we live on the backs of other people's boldness. We're sort of benefiting from the accrued capital of individuals who had the adventure posture toward uncertainty. And much of that posture related to their very real and vibrant faith in God. So when boldness is right, it benefits others. And I want to commend boldness to you out of your sense of love for others, and not only others in this age, but in the ages to come. And I want you to consider boldness as an act of kindness to future generations, just as those who were bold in the past provided much for you. But I also, and this is my main, my main aim, I also believe that you, you, Many of you have received an incredible gift of God, many gifts from God. And I believe that in many instances, the final piece of the puzzle is to take on boldness in dispensing who God made you to be to the world. I think of you as sort of like a garden hose and uh, full of hepatitis. No, I'm kidding. Uh, No, uh, a garden hose, and you're dispensing the water of life from Jesus Christ, right? And, And the truth is, is that many of you have spent years walking with the Lord, and whether that's been a long time or a short time, he has made you, an individual, this essential expression, this essential, unique expression of his image. And people need you to show up, and not at a trickle. People need the bold you. The bold version of you, not the bold version of me. The people need the bold version of you. In the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis says, courage, and I find no problem just substituting boldness there in this instance, courage is not simply one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at the testing point which means at the point of highest reality. And so what we're really talking about with boldness, it's not really an add-on attribute. It's the expression of all the things God has already done in your life in the face of risk. It's, It's the freely giving of who God has made you to be. 
the truth he's given you, the gifts he's given you, the resources he's given you, it's the turning on of the faucet all the way. And the world needs the full you, not the timid you. The world needs the full, bold version of Christ in you, would be the more accurate way of saying it. Not the dribbled version of Christ in you. And so as I was preparing this message, I was thinking specifically about you as individuals. And I, was, I wasn't thinking in a critical sense of this person's fearful or this person's bold or this person's wrongly bold or so on. I was just praying. I was just asking the Lord, Lord, would you help each person in our congregation who you have made to be a unique version, a unique sort of representation of your goodness and glory, would you allow that person to be bold in them being the person you've called them to be? Would you turn the tap all the way on in each one of our lives and let each one of us be who God's called us to be to the world, not at a trickle, not at a timid trickle, but in a full-blown, opened-up faucet, adventurous attitude toward the future, bold, courageous position toward risk and uncertainty. That's what, that's what I'm praying for. That's what I'm asking the Lord to do. I'm not asking the Lord to make you someone else. I don't think you need to be someone else. I'm asking the Lord that you, that you would be allowed through his gifts, through his spirit, to become the boldest version of Christ in you that's possible. Now, how do we get there? Well, I, some of us are going to get there by looking like Ruth. This, this, this boldness of Ruth, who says, <laughs> I think almost before she realized what she said, who knows? Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Bold commitment, bold loyalty. Ruth I intruding herself upon the tent of Boaz. That's boldness. The widow giving her last bit of money. That's boldness. There's another boldness I want to... I want to talk to you about is sort of the Barnabas of the Old Testament, I think. Jonathan, the son of Saul. Jonathan himself was positioned to simply sit back and let life come to him, take no risks, and essentially wait for the inevitable downfall of his father, whom he could see clearly was a fool. And so he's similar to Barnabas in a way that he boldly loves who turns out to be the main character of those stories. Barnabas with Paul and Jonathan with David. And so there's, this, there's all sorts of bold love and bold risks and bold living that takes place in the life of Jonathan. But I want to just remind you of one of the stories about Jonathan. It shows up in 1 Samuel 14. He goes to his armor bearer and he says to the young man who carries his shield, come, let us go over to the garrison of these, uns the garrison of these uncircumcised, um, the Philistines. They were at war with the Philistines. It may be, it may be. This is, this is his posture, his appropriate adventurous posture toward uncertainty. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And so at the end of the story, Jonathan and his armor bearer went up together and killed about 20 Philistines all by themselves. And 
of course, the idea itself, this is, this, is, this is another thing I'm praying for, bold imaginations. The thing that he did is impressive, sure. The thing that he thought, the possibility he entertained, that's boldness. It's a baptized, as this is what Lewis would say, a baptized imagination. It's an imagination adjoined to the realities of who God is. And so when the rest of us would see two people versus 20, and it just literally would never occur to us. A bold man with a bold imagination, might even say a bold prayer life, looks at something utterly impossible and says, well, maybe God will do that. And so what I'm asking the Lord for as I prepared this message is that he would turn us into bold people. And the other piece of the Jonathan story I love so much is, is that, yes, God can use just one, but he is most likely to use at least a few of us walking together in our unique individual expressions of boldness. I think that one of the great dangers to a uh, the great threats to a church walking in unified boldness would be for us to look at your expressions and say, you are a coward because you're not doing this exact thing I'm doing. And I think it would be easy for some of the people who are doing less offensive things, things that make the world less angry. Because, I mean, let's, let's be honest. Like, like, suppose that you're like, I'm going to give all my money and start a food pantry. No one's going to be mad at you. <laughs> right? Now, you're being bold, but no one's going to be angry with you. But suppose someone else said, I am going to invest wholeheartedly in opposing some thing happening in the world that has just all kinds of hostility associated with it. But it's really easy to look at the, the person who's taking the stand on the hot issue and either falsely attribute boldness, where it might be self-righteousness, or to look at that man and say, you're being sinfully bold. You're just embracing controversy. You need to be more winsome. It's like the thing that we need to realize is that together, if we walk together, trusting the Holy Spirit, who is the author of boldness, we'll see. Well, I just think it'd be marvelous. And I think you would think it was marvelous too. So where does boldness come from? Well, let's look back at the text again. Proverbs 28.1. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. If we want the right kind of boldness, we need righteousness. Any kind of boldness not based on righteousness is bloviation and boastfulness and arrogance. It is not the kind of boldness commended here. We want the kind of boldness that comes from true righteousness. And this is the main idea of this text. So where does this righteousness come from? Well, we on this side of the cross have a much better answer to that question than the original audience of this proverb had. For we know 2 Corinthians 5.21 gives us a very clear answer as to the source of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become 
the righteousness of God. Where does righteousness come from? Well, I'll tell you where the real righteousness comes from. The very righteousness of God. I suppose you could say there are other forms of righteousness. Uh, false form, self-righteousness being one. The righteousness that comes by comparing yourself to others. And so on and so forth. But what we have in Christ and what we have in the gospel is the real stuff. The real pure stuff. You know, I, 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 I'm diamonds are kind of front of mind right now because I've had two kids get engaged this year. And I heard this terrible, this terrible envy-inciting uh, jewelry store talk about lab-grown love. <laughs> Isn't that so manipulative and, like, just terrible? They're like, we don't, we're not sellers of lab-grown love. We, we sell you the real diamonds, the ones that Africans die over, you know, or whatever. <laughs> the whole thing was stupid. But I did think about how there are many substitutes for righteousness. But we are given not just righteousness through Christ, but the righteousness of God. The main thing, the real thing, the source of the thing, the thing all the others try to imitate. In Christ, we are not given a self-righteousness which leads to a false boasting, a false boldness, we are, given, we are given the righteousness of God. You know, I was thinking this week about how the disciples of Jesus really exemplified the whole text, right? Do you see that? Look at the text again, Proverbs 28.1, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. The disciples lived that experience. We see a group at the cross, a group of men who were afraid, fleeing and scattering, and in the case of Peter, denying Jesus three times. Was anyone pursuing them? I don't know. I think it's just safe to say they were not the main targets of what was happening that particular weekend. But here's what I know. I know that they were afraid. And then something happened so that they would never be afraid in that way again. I know that something happened that shifted them from being primarily an expression of the first part of the proverb to being people who flee and to being people who were as bold as lions. I think that the writer of Acts, that the Dr. Luke, is very concerned that we understand the gospel's effect on producing boldness. I think that the transformation we see amongst the disciples is, is really a transformation from people who were afraid to people who were unafraid. In fact, in chapter 4, when the relatively very same people who crucified Jesus pulled Peter and John before them. In verse 13 of Acts 4, it says, they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, and they were astonished. 
and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And most importantly, of all the things that they had done with Jesus, the thing that they had done with Jesus that had the most consequence on their boldness was they had been at the cross. And I want to help you to see how the gospel of God's righteousness, which Paul says in Romans 1, 16 and 17, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God to us. I want you to see how in the desire to become more bold, what you need to do is you need to keep looking at the gospel with the intention, by the way, not just don't, don't just be like some kind of gospel sightseer, but I'm just telling you, if you want to be bold, here's where you go. If you want to be bold, here's where you go. You go to the gospel of God. You go to the place that the righteousness of God is revealed. Because the righteousness of God isn't simply revealed in the gospel. The righteousness of God is given to you through the gospel. And so if you want to be bold, you must be righteous. How does one get, become righteous without becoming self-righteous? Only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's this kind of weird fascination I have with ultra wealthy people. I think it's just because we have so much in common. They always provide the, the best recommendations on the top of the line yacht for the year and so on and so forth. Uh, actually, the, the fascination I have with hyper wealthy individuals is, uh, is that they've reached this point of imperviousness to public opinion. And so I just enjoy listening to people say what they really think in general. It's actually pretty hard to find people who will just say what they really think. But someone with $200 billion tends to do so more often than you might think. Essentially, there is a kind of level of wealth that produces a level of boldness, right? I think we're all familiar with that. Friends, this is what the gospel did for the disciples. And this is what the, the gospel can do for you. It can convince you that you are wealthy. It can make you act like you are in very serious, real ways, insulated from the winds and waves that toss and turn so many others. It can give you license to act as boldly as you should. Now, let me give you three ways that the gospel does this. And the first one is, is that at the heart of the gospel, you are told that you are nothing. You are told that you are nothing. The heart of the gospel is simply that even your most righteous acts are like filthy rags, that you have nothing that God wants. You have nothing to, uh, to bring to the table as if you were going to trade for salvation. He is not impressed with you. He is not enticed by anything you have to offer. The fundamental of the gospel is, is that you are nothing. God did not do all that he did because he looked down through time and said, well, that one's super special. And I got to make sure I've got him in my little collection. It is, it is not that way. 
Now, what, what, how, can, how can you or nothing produce boldness? Friends, I think that people need to understand how often fear or pride amplifies fear. Let me just give you an example. So, so I, I, what I'm suggesting is, is that there are lots of things in life to be afraid of at kind of a reasonable level of fear. So you can think of Josh's guitar back here. If I unplug it from the amplifier and played it right now, you could hear it. So, so, there's, so there's things that are fearful and scary in life. But then when you plug it into the amplifier, suddenly the fear is just so much more. And uh, I think a lot of people that are struggling with fear don't understand the, the relationship that pride has to this. So let me just give you an illustration. Um, I, am, I have been poor in my life. I am not presently poor in my life, right? So I've been financially poor, pretty far down. I'm not presently there. Do I want to go back? No. Um, is there some fear of returning to that level of poverty? Yeah, there's some noise there, right? Right. There's some noise there. That's a guitar unplugged. There's some reasonable fear of, of being poor. Plug in the amplifier of pride. And now I'm concerned about what other people think about me. Plug in the amplifier of ego. And now a kind of a, a quiet fear, a, a low-laden fear, suddenly becomes very loud. Because what I'm really afraid of is not, you know, eating, well, what do we eat? Salisbury steaks from Aldi every, every night. What the real fear is you seeing me greeting at Walmart. So what the ego is doing, what, what pride is doing, is it's amplifying a real fear. But once you are okay just being a nothing, and just loving Jesus and being loved by Jesus, and you've completely disconnected all of these social pressures and these needs to impress others, and these needs to be other things to other people, and earn your approval, and so on and so forth, well now... Am I, do I want to be poor? No, I don't want to be poor. Am I kind of afraid of being poor? I am. I'm actually not super afraid of it, though, because for me, the ego on that area is not super dominant. But I would, I would invite you to look at all of your fears of failure, all of your fears of stepping into something risky and unknown, and I would invite you to ask, would a completely humble version of me who has no regard for what others think be as afraid of this thing I'm afraid of as what I'm afraid of now? And I think the answer is often no. You see, in order for the disciples to accumulate this level of boldness where they could literally stand before anyone, in order for that to be real and not self-righteous and not boastful, they had to see their nothingness at the foot of the cross. They had to see that they could not and would not stand for Jesus apart from Jesus' power. They had to see they really were nothing. And they had to make peace with that part of the human existence so that then they could take the risks 
then they could frequently, for instance, they thought they were going to go over here and they would tell people, I'm going to visit you over here and then something changes. They, 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 did, not, they did not restrict their lives by attempting to have hyper control of it, that control being motivated by a desire to always look like you knew what was going on. Once you surrender all of those prideful, egotistic pieces of this, and you're just, because the gospel has told you, you're just content to be nothing apart from Christ. Friends, a great deal of fear slips away. And a kind of boldness emerges that is authentic and built on the righteousness of Christ. Secondly, not only do you learn in the gospel that you are nothing, but you learn that God is everything. Some, one of the things you could do if you were just interested in having, like maybe you lay down and you think, oh, let me think about something until I fall asleep. Here's one to think about. Think about how God's attributes. Most of you know a lot of God's attributes. His omnipotence, his sovereignty, and so on and so forth. His love, his mercy, his justice, his holiness. Think of all those attributes and then think about how each one is displayed at the cross. And the truth is, is that you can see every single one of God's attributes, not just love, displayed at the cross. Indeed, the disciples' early lesson was, of course, that, yes, God's love is magnificently displayed on the cross. But when you read what they actually say about it, immediately following, they were also marveling at God's sovereignty. But all of these things had come to pass according to the will and definite plan of God. And so in addition to learning through the gospel that we are nothing, and we get some boldness out of that, weirdly, there's, we, we get boldness out of seeing that God is really super in control. He's really in charge. And the third thing that you see when you look at the gospel is that I'm nothing, God is everything, and here's the, here's the sweet... Um, resolution of those two ideas the third truth is this Christ has clothed you in his moral beauty Christ has clothed you in his moral beauty this goes back to the garden this goes back to the original reason for fleeing when you look at the gospel you see I am not actually naked I am clothed in the moral beauty of Christ. So Christ has clothed you in the moral, his moral beauty, and thus God is reflexively for you. The God of the universe, able to bring all things to pass according to his purpose, the one who is able to work all things out together for the good of them who are called according to his purpose, to be conformed to the image of his son, the God of the universe who created all things is not only for you, but reflexively for you. Because when he looks at you, he sees the clothing of his son extended to you and fit to you so that you look and are, in his mind, righteous. Paul says in Romans 8.31, What then shall we say? To these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ. Who, I read that wrongly, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, if you want a second assignment, you go home and you understand where this boldness flowed from. And that will require you to read the first seven and a half chapters of Romans. And if you, you should do this, but if you won't do this, I'll just tell you, it flowed from a gospel, the gospel, which Paul introduces in Romans 1, 16 and 17, as the power of God unto salvation by which the righteousness of God is revealed for faith through faith. This boldness, which would make you so much more you in all of the right ways, comes from beholding the gospel of Jesus Christ, which Paul says in 2 Corinthians is simply this. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What I'm proposing in these two sermons is that some of us get off of the arrogance anxiety roller coaster once and for all. That we stop bouncing back from fear and pride and pride and fear and fear and pride and pride and fear. And that we see there is this other way that is only available to us when we behold the realities of the gospel given to us freely apart from anything we can do. So just to review, boldness is just another way of talking about a posture toward uncertainty. And rather than being arrogant or being anxious, we can be adventurous, courageous, and bold. And if you're looking for the one thing that sort of typifies all of the heroes of the Bible, it is something like what I'm talking about right now. God is interested in creating a bold version of you. Think of you in text, highlighted, control A, control B. God is interested in creating a bold version of you. A boldness that is sort of full blast expression of Christ in you and all of the virtues and all of the gifts he has placed in you. It's sort of what I would say is the unlocked version of you versus the free-to-download version of you. You got all the features going. And this unlocked version of you is going to be more loving, more useful in speech, more generous, more loyal, and more, shall we say, ambitious in a godly way. And this boldness can only come from one source. If you try, and this is, if you're on the arrogance, anxiety roller coaster, what you're doing is you're living under the law. 
this is uh, also part of Romans, if you'll read it, especially just even the first uh, chapter 7 and first part 8. If you're, if you're on the anxious anxiety roller coaster, you're attempting to establish a righteousness in your own adherence to some moral code. It could be God's, it could be your consciences, whatever. If you're on the roller coaster, that's what's happening to you. And you may be mostly familiar of the fear you feel because we are blind to our own pride. But you are going back and forth between those two things constantly. To get off of it, you need the gospel because that is where real righteousness comes from. And the righteous are as bold as a lion. In the gospel, we are offered the very righteousness of God. And there is no other righteousness but the righteousness of God. When we look at the gospel, we see that we are nothing. And in some really unexpected way, making peace with being nothing makes you bold. The gospel shows us that God is sovereign and just, amongst many other virtues and qualities. And the gospel shows us that we have been clothed in Christ's moral beauty so that we no longer need to flee, but can, with confidence or boldness, approach the throne of grace. Now, I want to talk about practical righteousness as in, in introducing communion. So let's look back at the text again. So what I've really talked about so far is legal righteousness. And what, what's very important to understand is in a Christian life, we don't work our way up to being declared righteous before God uh, with works. We are declared righteous before God, and we work backwards to make our life functionally, practically, in conformity to what God has already said is true. So we obey his declaration that we are righteous by becoming more and more practically righteous. So the verse again, just the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. Now, I have no doubt that my exposition of that verse was spot on and like it was absolutely the main meaning of the text according to the Holy Spirit. So when the Holy Spirit inspired this to be written, the Holy Spirit saw the cross and the righteousness of God as the ultimate fulfillment of this. The Holy Spirit saw Peter moving from a fleer to a fighter, so on and so forth. But I also know very clearly that the human author of Proverbs was probably thinking about just a, a, a lower-based, lower-resolution reality, simply this. People who have a bunch of sinful junk in their lives can't be bold. Probably shouldn't be bold. And I think that is an important idea to understand. A life of integrity, a life of moral integrity, leads to a level of boldness that a life of moral inconsistency can never sustain and should not sustain. And I want to say this to you, friends, because, again, this is all about me helping you be the full version of who God created you to be. Very few things erode godly confidence like secret sin. Very few things erode godly confidence like secret sin. There are many who are kept from being as bold as they could be because the abuser, the accuser of the brethren has something on them. And I want you to understand that 
the gospel is not only an agent of forgiveness, it is also an agent of formation. It doesn't just wipe the slate clean, it makes you practically more like Jesus from one degree of glory to the next. And so, if any of you are in a state of thinking, yeah, but this. Friends, I've been under the preaching of the word before where something wasn't okay with me. And I've heard a sermon like this. Probably not as good as this, but I've heard a sermon like this. Friends, I'm, I'm the biggest yeah, but guy in the world when it comes to this stuff. And I've felt the yeah, buts. I've felt the, um, not you though. Not you. Everybody else maybe, but not you. That preacher doesn't know you. Well, let me help you. 1 John 1, nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so for some of us, the first thing, the first bold thing we must do today, do it today, don't, don't pack this lunch for later, eat it now. The first bold thing some of us must do is to boldly believe God. Who says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The truth is, is that all of the boldness we're commending this morning must flow from that one bold idea that each one of us boldly asks God for something we have no business asking for. That we boldly ask God for a grace and a mercy that cannot be earned. And then we boldly believe that what he declares in his word is true. All the other boldness that flows downstream from that must be built first and foremost on the belief that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him and that that seeking looks first and foremost like accepting what Jesus Christ has done freely for us and putting on those clothes of moral perfection that he has given us and refusing to be victims anymore of the accuser of our brothers, of our own weak and guilty conscience and say, nope, I'm going to boldly trust that Jesus Christ has paid for my sins. So if there's something specific that's pulling on your conscience, something that keeps shutting off the valve of boldness and keeps causing you to retreat in the very moments that you should risk, be bold with God this morning. Ask for his forgiveness. Be bold in accepting it. Be bold in the moment you sin. Confess that sin right then and there. Go to God immediately and ask for grace. And you keep doing that over and over and over again. This is what I'm going to promise you. You keep boldly applying the gospel to your sin. 
And you will see what I just said, that the gospel is not only a tool for forgiveness, it's a tool for formation. Your life will be changed, but not through self-righteousness, not through the self-righteous, self-punishing distance you inflict upon yourself and God for a matter of a few weeks or something until you forget or the thing seems less bad. No, go to Jesus right away and say, I have sinned. I confess my sin to you. And now I am boldly believing your word that I am forgiven and that I am cleansed of all unrighteousness. Friends, the truth is, is that the world will use guilt to get you to be a crimped hose. Sometimes even our own children will do that to us. Sometimes our own friends. Unknowingly leveraging our failures to get us to be a less bold, clear picture of Jesus to the world. No. No, Jesus didn't die for us to walk around like crimped hoses, full of guilt. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Martin Luther once said, when I look at myself, I don't see how I can be saved. But when I look at Christ, I don't see how I can be lost. And so the table set before you this morning for you to come and look at Christ and not at yourself and say, I don't know how I can be lost with this great Savior who has offered himself on my behalf. Come and partake.